lifetimes of listening. I mean, there's times I just listen to that and just cry by myself, you know? George and Ira Gershwin have my entire heart. <laughs> I couldn't fathom the idea that I was going to get to see one of my musical heroes at 10 years old in concert. I mean, I think everyone in my family has a very large variety of the type of music we listen to. I guess a lot of these songs bring up the connotation of freedom for me, like expansiveness. Lifetimes of Listening. It's Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory podcast, an outgrowth of the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. I'm Dan Cruz, an alum of the University of Arizona School of Music. Uh, I do scholarly work and research and uh, documentary work about music. Happen to be a part-time radio announcer at the local NPR-affiliated radio station as well. And I'm Brian Moon, an associate professor of practice at the School of Music, and I uh, am the coordinator for music and general education. I like to work with general audiences and explore their love of music and how music brings meaning into their lives. So what can you expect to hear on this program? Something like the following. The album Bad Out of Hell was the soundtrack of my childhood. I listened to that album again today, and that interior world was right there. Our aim is to document record, archive, and study the musical memories that are such an important part of people's lives. People share with us important musical memories that have stayed with them over time, and we gather and we post these memories on our Lifetimes of Listening website. It's Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast, a fascinating topic today about musical fandom. Stay with us for that. Have you ever been a fan, a fan of a musical artist, a band? Have you ever felt like you were going overboard a little bit? Many people who enjoy music have that one story, that one band, that one artist that they just get all, all out of their heads for and they get really excited about. Um, sometimes an excitement that, that they can share with others and sometimes people around them don't know what they're talking about. Um, today, our subject is, is Fans Gone Wild. <laughs> it's, it's a collection of some of the stories of people that, that share these memories of just being moved so much by music that they just dive in, all in. And, um, and, we've, all, and we've all known people who have this, who, yes. who have <laughs> acts or musical artists that they, for whatever reason, are completely obsessed with. Yes. And that's kind of what we're going to comment on today and explore in our own memories and some that we're going to share with our guests in a little while. So uh, I have a story of my own musical fandom experience, which is kind of bizarre. And I look back on it now and realize how silly I must have looked. When I was in uh, 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 high school, maybe 15, 16, 17 years old, I got introduced to a band called The Flock from Chicago. They were the opening act for another uh, act performing somewhere in St. Louis. I fell so in love with the flock that I just I couldn't get them out of my head. And then I heard that they were coming back to St. Louis to play at a little teen club on, uh, on western uh, St. Louis County. I said to my girlfriend, Susan, I'm, I'm borrowing Dad's car. We're going to see the flock. The concert starts at 8. It's 45 <laughs> minutes away. I'm picking you up when you get out of your 3.30 class. We're driving right there because there are going to be thousands of people in line to see this band. I was that enraptured with the flock. I borrow the car, I pick up Susie, we get on the road, 
I'm, I'm speeding like a maniac to get there because there are going to be thousands of people in line to see this band. We better be there by 4 o'clock, Susie, or we'll, we won't even get in. And we drive to the club, and we pull up, and there weren't a thousand people in line. In fact, there were no people in line. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I realized that I had, as much as I loved the flock, and still do, I, I kind of was a fan gone wild on this occasion. <laughs> Uh, going overboard with my own love and losing all perspective on what this band might mean to somebody else. So we came back at eight, the concert started, we had a great time, and that was my story of being a a fan gone wild over the flock from Chicago. I have have actually a kind of similar story. I, I remember I was just out of college, and I was trying to keep touch with some of my college friends, and one of them had an idea of meeting and going to a Jimmy Buffett concert altogether and to just because Jimmy Buffett concerts are these wild experiences, particularly in the early nineties when this happened. And I noticed that opening for Jimmy Buffett was Johnny Clegg and the Savuka, which is a little known South African pop band. It was a, it was actually a white ethnomusicologist that um, worked with a black Zulu folk musician and they formed a, a pop rock group that, uh, have a few songs that you might have heard in the background of movies. and But I was a college DJ, and my radio station had all of these Johnny Clegg and Savuka CDs and, and LPs, and I'd listened and played all of these, and I knew the I, I knew the some of the Zulu words to the songs. I was just a huge fan. So I was so excited, and I was standing up, singing along to these songs, in a sea of parrot heads, the name for, for the crazy fans of Jimmy Buffett. And, Jimmy Buffett. and they were all just sort of like staring at me in a sort of drunken stupor and wondering, <laughs> what is this, you know, what is this kid doing? Um, yeah. You saw something in the, in the music that they, somehow they were oblivious. For to. whatever reason. And so I had this, this distinct experience of being a huge fan of something and nobody, you know, Jimmy Buffett came out and praised uh, Johnny Clegg and praised this group. And I was sitting there. I was I was all in for this group, and uh, and I was kind of alone. Uh, everyone was kind of staring. My friends were sort of distancing themselves to not be seen yeah. next to me. So yeah. So we've each had the experience of being a fan, kind of overboard, particularly Gaga over a particular musical artist, and others wondering what the heck is going on right. with this guy. Yes. So that's our topic today: fans and a fans gone wild musical fandom. Uh, in the extreme. We've got a special guest coming up in just a minute who's going to talk to us about this concept of musical fandom. And some uh, we'll share some provocative musical memories from fans who've shared their own uh, extreme fandom stories with us. Our guest, by the way, has led a most interesting musical life, including decades of touring with one of the most well-known pop country artists of the last 50 years. So that's all coming up as Lifetimes of Listening moves ahead. Stay with us. privilege today to have as a guest on our Lifetimes of Listening podcast, uh, a very special guest. And just in the interest of full disclosure, I'll mention that this is a gentleman who I kind of knew as a kid 
in that we lived and grew up in the same community of Jennings, Missouri. Uh, but our guest, Warren, was, I think, six years my senior and a classmate of my brother's. But nonetheless, he was this guy who I knew all about because growing up in Jennings, Missouri in the 1960s, there was this there was this guy named Warren Hartman, who was a musical prodigy, we all thought and believed, rightly so, and played uh, all kinds of instruments and in the jazz band and had a band of his own. And and uh, since then, uh, he's gone on to have a really interesting musical career. So it's nice to be reconnected. And uh, Warren Hartman, welcome to Lifetimes of Listening. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Tell me, uh, tell tell Brian and me just a bit about your musical journey, where it started, where it has taken you, what what your musical life has meant to you. Okay. Well, I'll give you a thumbnail, maybe a little biography. Um, the way I remember it was uh, from the perspective of a little rocking chair and little me with a uh, bathrobe on listening to albums that my mother and father had and mm. i was alive and conscious in the 50s prior to that i don't know what i was but um so the albums were south pacific mm. and oklahoma and a few other things that i kind of barely remember but sort of do so they were all in that kind of light opera zone i started to get melodies I didn't know it. You know, I was five years. This is pre-kindergarten. So time passes, dad passed. And um, I remember mom taking me to a junior high uh, gymnasium. You may remember this, Dan. I remember mm -hmm. junior high. Not sure. Anyway, we're sitting there in a in folding chairs, listening to the band in this proscenium position. The band was sitting on the stage. Right. There was a stage in the junior high gymnasium. Correct. And um, suddenly I began to feel this vibration, probably bass drum, maybe tuba, maybe who knows, in the floor. And I remember distinctly thinking, this is happening. This is <laughs> sensual. This is something. I don't know how old I was. Probably 12, uh -huh. 13, something like that. But I sparked on it. And um, I couldn't tell anybody, really. I mean, because there wasn't anything to tell. But from that point on, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And uh, and it came from that little vibration. I remember feeling that thing. So I went on to play saxophone. And um, I played it all right. I kind of, in my early days, like seventh grade or something, I somehow or another managed to move up to first chair in the senior high band, I got lucky one day, you know, I was the only one who could play a certain part part. And uh, if I may, let me just insert uh, you, you worked in that band under the direction of Charles K Schmidt, who was my band right. leader as well, a major influence in both of our lives, having grown up in Jennings, Missouri. Absolutely. Right. He was, and I actually studied with him. So you were involved in music through high school and, yeah. and, and, and it led college, you to this, uh, you know, a community college for a year, trying to figure out whether I wanted to do music or medicine or, believe it or not, the ministry. And I chose music, so I hip-hopped over to the St. Louis Music uh, Institute of Music down in Clayton where you had to pay for parking um, and went to school there. And then I finally graduated with a degree in theory and 
composition. I don't understand, but I did. And, um, and then, of course, the likely thing for me to do right then with that degree was go on the road, you know, uh, as a, a rock musician. I kind of dreamed of doing that. And I did that for a long, long time. And um, I'm not sure exactly where that led, but to an album for certain with Kenny Rogers, he produced an album on our band. And I wrote most of that stuff. And and so that happened. And we went on and we kept playing and playing and playing and finally stopped, moved to Nashville. I kind of became friends with the guy who actually mixed that album, Kyle Lenning. And we started off with England Dan and John Ford Coley. And I did the strings for them. And and uh, for their first song, really love to see you tonight. Well, that was successful. And of course, upon having that success, my wife decided that she wanted to leave Nashville. And so <clears throat> we did and uh, drove up to Rochester where I thought maybe I would go to school and study film music scoring or something like that. But we soon discovered that Rochester had, I think, 17 and a half days of sun and the rest was... Rochester, Rochester, New York, you're talking, speaking of. Yeah. I've been there. Right. I've been there. I've seen that. Yes. Yeah. So we moved back to St. Louis. We divorced. I moved out to L.A. I began writing and playing. And um, ultimately, that led to an opening in the Kenny Rogers Band. Did the audition and joined the band. I was one of his piano players. And also, I was his conductor. I... I began that job, and six months later, I'm standing in front of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, uh, ready to lift the uh, ceremonial baton and get them started, all, all the while going, I don't believe I'm doing this. I'm standing on a podium in front of a major orchestra, and uh, and uh, with knees knocking and, uh, you know, Every bullet sweating I can possibly imagine, I got through it. So, so you've had a really interesting career, Warren, and and it's really it's great to hear about that. Let's turn our attention to what we're talking about today in this particular podcast. Now, uh, Brian and I, after some deliberation, have have named this podcast kind of tongue in cheek, "Fans Gone Wild." Okay, it's a look. It's a look at what it means to be a musical fan of an artist or a group. Um, what are the, what to your to your ways of thinking, you two, Brian uh, and Warren? What does it mean to be a, a big fan of a musical artist? I've got my own little list of of things, but what does it mean to you to be a major fan of a mu musical artist? My fanship comes from things like collecting all the records and listening to the music. You know, the records a, a lot. Um, going to a, a live shows when I can. But then I have also this conce conception of a, a fan as as a person, you know, like the goes to all of the shows that follows a, mm -hmm. a, a group around and and so also likes the song and then knows the trivia surrounding the deep tracks, I which I sometimes know if I'm really personally connected to music, sometimes I don't want to know too much. I just want to like in sit in the sound, you know, I don't want I don't want to I don't want to get in my head too much about it. Or what is what does it mean to you to to be a music fan of a of an artist you know what it means to be a fan ah they become like uh the the pebbles that you pick up on the ocean um not everybody's attracted to the same pebbles and sure. 
I will gather the ones that uh, attract me. And they kind of come in categories. Uh, There'll be people who are, you know, above ground or below ground, I guess. And, um, you know, then jazz and classical and um, maybe even um, film music, et cetera. Lots of different categories that happen. But um, it, it, it absolutely means that you know most of their music. One one of my experiences of being a musical fan, uh, I'll name a, a group in particular that you and I mentioned, discussed the other day, Warren, that is The Flock, a, a band from Chicago from the late 60s, early 70s. It was my daily practice to listen to the album, The Flock, from start to finish. A day did not pass for a year. This the, and, the, and my brothers and my parents knew this is Dan's ritual. He's got to do this. He's got to lie down on the living room floor next to the stereo speakers and listen to the flock start to finish. It was an obsessive kind of thing. The The other thing that I see in myself is that my, my obsession with a particular group will start taking the form of having to tell everybody what a great band is and making them sit and listen to the music with me, whether they really want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I think I think I've known a couple of you guys in a way. But, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I usually try to go out the other door. I'm sorry, I gotta go. You know, yeah. one of those things. But uh, I've had a similar experience with uh, several different pieces of music and some several different al- albums. I remember one summer listening to the Ravel um, string quartet in F, which is the only one he wrote, uh, all summer long. And I was just, uh, it, 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 it just hypnotized me. And, and uh, sometimes Holst would get me like that. Very, very rarely would a, a, um, a contemporary artist grab me like that, other than people like maybe Laura Nero, Randy Newman, Joni, of course, and, uh, and James. Here's a funny uh, kind of fandom realization of mine a number of years ago. This is, again, 20, 25 years ago. I was looking through my record collection, and I suddenly realized quite unexpectedly that I owned more albums by the folk folk artist Dan Fogelberg than than anybody else in my record collection. And And I thought... That must mean something. I had I I did happen to see him once, a very memorable occasion of seeing Dan Fogelberg in a very intimate setting. But suddenly I woke up and realized I must be really a big fan of this guy's because I keep collecting his records. And I, and I had more records of him than I had did by Dave Brubeck, more than I had of the Beatles, more than I had. Of course, Cream didn't release that many. Uh, I, I mean, I was a big fan of lots of artists and suddenly realized I bought, I spent more money on this guy than anybody. So, you know, one of my early early memories of just having a song hit me so much that I just, I had to run out and get, and this is like the the second or third cassette tape that I purchased in my life because I was born in 71. So cassettes were the thing you bought, you know, when you're in junior high, if you liked a music group. And, um, and it was Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Cause just that's, I, I, I'm not, I can't say that I'm a Kenny Rogers fan, but that song hit me just right and just just particularly like i don't for, i don't know what it is the storytelling in it or i i learned how to play cards recently but so you have spent a lifetime uh on the stage looking down at adoring fans 
what, what is your perception of fans? Like what, for, uh, from that, that vantage point of being on the stage and looking down? It was, uh, we had a particularly interesting perspective in that Kenny didn't like to stare into a dark house. Hmm. He had the first, whether they liked it or not, about the first 15 rows lighted from above, of course. And um, so he could see hmm. the people, the fans, get their reactions, play to them. He sort of exuded this thing of a young boy sometimes, the way he looked. Had this just mischievous thing. He was also a rich guy, you know, rich kid, kind of like he did that, but they never saw that. Hmm. I think the fans felt his naturalness, which is really true. He was like that off stage as well as on stage. Mm. He did that. We had some fans who were so uh, fanatical about him that they essentially knew every tune. In fact, they did know every song and, and uh, all the lyrics they thought. And so they had a very, very, uh, we gave them a, an adoring name, which I'm not going to tell you, but they were two sisters and, um, and uh, they would, it looked like a dubbed in foreign movie when you were watching them sing the songs because they didn't get any of the lyrics right, but it was with so much enthusiasm <laughs> held their heads back and just rocked yeah. with these things. And they were the type of people who uh, would bring flowers every time they came. And the flowers would have a number on it. And I mean, they started being like 1,200. That was the number of the show that they had seen. Oh, my. And, wow. and still, you know, after 1,500 shows, they got their heads back just singing some kind of words we don't know what they were but fascinating yeah. it was it was rough real and, real, uh, real fandom that you're witnessing there oh they were they were they were and they were great people we knew them susan and Charmin, and we got to know them really well yeah. and uh they were they were fine people in general his fans as far as i knew were really great yeah. no hecklers never a heckler nobody ever messing with him yeah. you know yeah he was very quick, too, in case they did mess with him, but they, they never did. So next on this uh, podcast uh, about fandom and super fans uh, with our guest, Warren Hartman. Um, Warren, we'd like to have you listen to a few interviews that Brian and I have gathered with people reflecting on their experience of being, you know, kind of super rabid music fans and get your reaction to those. Um there are three of them. They're each, uh, you know, in the range of two minutes or so, plus or minus each one. So we'll play each one and then just uh, get your thoughts on what these folks have to say. Brian, can you introduce uh, our first one? Yes. Uh, Shai Corman was uh, a participant at the U of A's Wonder House in South by Southwest in, in the spring. We, uh, Dan and I met him and we told him about our podcast. He told us a little bit about his podcast and then he uh, gave us this wonderful uh, musical memory. He told us a, a little bit about his first super fandom moment. And, and, and so it, uh, it's a, a great story that I'm excited to share. Okay, my name is Shai Corman. I'm a podcaster, a lifetime music fan, or at least music fan for most of my life. And I have a few formative musical moments. 
And I don't know how many people bring up Weird Al Yankovic as their formative musical moment. I was 10 years old. I lived in Montreal. That's where I grew up, in Montreal. And it was the Just for Last Festival, which is this very famous Canadian music uh, comedy festival. And my parents came and showed me in the newspaper that Weird Al Yankovic was going to be hosting a comedy showcase at the last festival. And my mother got us tickets to see it. And she took me and my friend Noah. And the way it worked is because he was hosting, Weird Al gave you two songs in between each act. And I couldn't fathom the idea that I was going to get to see one of my musical heroes at 10 years old in concert. And when the show ended, my mother, who is an incredible force of nature, said, we've got to go meet him. And so we go to the backstage door. My mother, without even batting an eye, just walks right through. And she walks all the way to the wherever he was, and I'm just waiting there terrified. And eventually, she reappears and waves me and says, you got to come, you got to come. Weird Al is waiting for you. And so here my mother pulls me backstage where there is no... Uh, <laughs> I have no credentials or anything, walks me around to his tour bus and Weird Al is standing there waiting to meet me. And he shook my hand and I told him, I don't remember what I said to him, but he told me, shook my hand and he said, keep in touch. And to me, I mean, it's a musical memory because he's a musician, but it's also a moment where I got to interact with somebody I admired so much and who made so much music that made me happy. And then, so for me, that is a formative musical memory, and to this day, even though I listen to all sorts of serious, esoteric, complicated music, Weird Al is a touchstone for me. So yeah, Weird Al Yankovic, uh, Yankovic uh, shared uh, with us by um, Shai Corman. Uh, Warren, your your thoughts on that? Well, um, it, one, I, I guess the question comes, uh, Weird Al's dad is a polka king, right? Is it the yeah, same? Frank, Frank you, Yankovic uh, is his dad. Yeah, and, and that's him. That's I, him. I have a couple of the Frank Yankovic albums, randomly enough. So, so that's a different story. <laughs> I, I, like, yeah, I like polka. I like polka. Anyway, I, I can relate to that 10-year-old boy. I mean, obviously, the, the heroine here is his mother. Goodness gracious. That, um, you know, had uh, the spirit of a Viking. To get to the tour bus, I mean, you would have to knock down lots of things. Um, it was charming. It, it was, uh, I can understand how he uh, had an admiration for Weird Al. He's smart, for one thing. And um, and his parodies are are really clever. And I could see where, and, he, and his musicianship in general is something really sensational. I can relate to... Um, shy i was sitting on an airplane with a woman who was as pushy as his mother is excuse me mrs coleman whatever your name is um and i told her i was sitting in first class and i told her that i thought bert Bacharach was sitting behind me Ooh. bert Bacharach, and she looked around and went yeah yeah that's bert Bacharach." Uh, and of course i i went ashen immediately and uh she i said he's really one of my heroes since i was i don't know god 10 years old and she compelled him she went reached over there and said hey this guy really liked you a lot <laughs> one of those things you know? and uh 
And so he said, well, oh, okay. Bert is a really little guy and, you know, kind of, he's just sitting back in there and, and uh, really didn't want to be bothered. But um, he talked to me for a minute and oddly enough, the story is, I'll make it quick, is I said, the first time I was ever introduced to a major nine chord was in your song, Are You There? And I said, I really, really liked it. I wasn't really sure whether it was an, a D major nine or an A over a D. And he said, it was an A over a D. He remembered that song out of hundreds of songs and remembered what chord yeah. he, he huh. had written. Uh, I was as blown away as I was. Uh, so I, I have a, there's a simpatico that I have here listening to shot is, is so uh, uh, weird Al. I hate to call him weird, weird Al, but weird. He named himself so. So let's move on to interview number two, and I'll introduce uh, this one. Um, our next interview subject here is a woman named Diana Daly. She's also a faculty member and a podcast producer at the University of Arizona. And she has a fan story of her own that's that she conveys to us in the form of a of a bit of poetry that she wrote some months ago. So here's here's Diana Daly. My name is Diana Daly, and you know, a few months ago when Meatloaf died, really it really took me back to uh, very early in my life, actually. And I made a social media post about it, and I wondered if I could start with that, and then I'll just talk about it. It's so here it goes. The album "Bad Out of Hell" was the soundtrack of my childhood. Before the separation. Before my fifth birthday, eating a Sara Lee chocolate cream pie with plastic forks at the prison. Before the hammer of consequence came down on my family. That album is the interior shared world, I remember. They kept the records and player low enough that my sister and I could paw them with our tiny hands. And Bad Out of Hell was the record that churned on and on over and over. It was a medley of hell and wolves and sex with revving engines. In those days, everyone was still drinking and happy and very messed up. Our father had a mustache thick as a rodent that would curl in a smile as he watched my sister and I thrash around the living room to that maniacal opening piano sequence. My father's out of my life now, I think, but I listened to that album again today and that interior world was right there. I heard his enraged memories of being beaten by nuns and what served as education for a low-class Irish boy in Jersey City. I heard the freedom of breaking free and being so, so bad. I heard the illicit adversarial sex that plays love until the song is over, so they made the songs long and layered the climaxes. I don't know what sense I made of it all when I was so young. But no matter my job or salary or what world I'm surrounded by now, I don't think I will ever fit into the middle class. My earliest memories told me to rail against a predictable life, to drown it all out in maniacal sound and fly out. So thank you, Dad, even though you didn't mean it. And thank you, Meatloaf, even though you didn't write it. And in my mind, Meatloaf was this embodiment of masculinity I think that Bad Out of Hell is just a tremendous performance. You know, I really appreciate it, not as something that I'm going to listen to to relax or even listen to to get excited, but that I'm, I'm just going to kind of view like a museum piece and just say, 
This really changed my world. Whoa, um, yeah. Sounds like meatloaf was part of her escape system, in a way. But but also that that idea of a of a of a record capturing so much of everything that you've got at one moment that years later you listen to that record and, and you're just right back there. There, I mean, there are records that I I have that connection to. It's sort of like, oh, that's the record that is this era of my life or this moment in my life. Or gosh, she's a remarkable writer. I mean, I would love to be reading this. Uh, we got to the plastic forks and the pris- in prison eating cake and the the rodent on her father's face. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was an enormous amount of description going on there. This lady was moved. And, yeah, the centerpiece of this thing was Meatloaf, was that Meatloaf album. And uh, it, uh, it, it's uh it's a notable that was a that was i i don't even know how she got that down on paper do you find um do you guys think that these things are usually uh uh coming from a person when uh, influencing a person when they're young i mean it's these last two examples were young people maybe even prepubescent I don't know. Yeah, they the, were young. The, the temporal proximity, as, as she mentioned, of of um, Meatloaf's death, and just prior to that, uh, what sounds like her kind of um, estrangement from her father, you know, uh, like just we said goodbye to one another, and uh, yeah, it was very moving. I, I recall when I was I was in my car back earlier this year, early part of this year, and I heard that Meatloaf had died. So I was outside a store, and I took the moment to just sit in the car. And open up YouTube and listen to uh, two out of three. What was it called? Two out of three ain't bad. His, his biggest hit, I think, which has always been a favorite song of mine. But that's like the only Meatloaf song that I really <laughs> know at all. But I revisited. I revisited my relationship to his to his uh, music, which was very. Uh, he was like the soundtrack to a certain emotional part of her, enormous part of her life. But it's really curious to me i didn't actually have one of those i don't know if you guys did but where i had a sort of a soundtrack thing didn't really happen it was so many other elements although i do remember the rhapsody in blue the first time i heard that i was in high school it kind of became uh something that i knew was the bed of something else which i didn't know what it was i have had moments of you know again i've had the soundtrack of this moment. This I I remember a, a a soundtrack of circa sixth seventh grade was the Kansas album. Um, I think it was well the lead single was "Play the Game Tonight." It was not even one of their better albums. Like I now I've have I actually have all their albums and I've listened to them all and you know it's just like a one of their okayish albums and. Uh, but that album, I, I listened to that. I wore out a cassette tape and then I bought the CD and listened to the later in, when CDs were around. Um, uh, in high, in college, I remember uh, Jane's Addiction came out. I was just hugely into that. And in high school, there was a couple of uh, Jimmy Buffett albums that I just dove into way too deep, you know, and became. And so there are these 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 albums that I get sucked into back into those moments in really rich ways and and i you know i I would fight to be able to 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 describe it as well and as and as balanced and as 
richly as as uh, Diana just did. That, that was incredible to be able to to put that. At, at, but I think I, I think a lot of people have those feelings. Just her ability to enunciate that was so. If there is if there was one we were talking here a minute ago about whether a particular album became a soundtrack for a period in our lives. The only one I can think of in my case was my dad, um, who was a military man in the army, uh, nonetheless, for whatever reason, became very entranced with an album that I think was soundtrack from a movie called Victory at Sea. I used to like that, too. It was it was I liked the themes, et cetera. But Richard Rogers was he was something. He was one of my heroes, of course. You know, he just had melodies coming out of every pore. But that was a great one. That was a great one. So one more interview to listen to. Um, and I conducted this one, so I'll introduce it. This is a, a fellow who's an employee at the University of Arizona in uh, uh, instructional design, I believe, uh, computer work. Really great, great young man who Brian and I met a couple of years ago. And uh, so let me introduce you to um, Buddy Buttram. Here he goes. Uh, so my name is Buddy Buttram. I'm from originally from Atlanta, Georgia, but spent the last probably uh, eight years or so in Nashville, Tennessee, and just moved to Tucson about nine months ago. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is one of the most influential times for me, too, as, as a musician, because I played drums, and I um, lost interest for a while. Um, I really kind of just, I always had a drum set set up, but I just never was very motivated to get behind it. And I discovered this band, Modesky, Martin, and Wood, from the John Schofield Go-Go album, Modesky, Martin, and Wood is the rhythm section on that record. The moment I heard Billy Martin playing drums, I was like, what is going on here? I have to figure out how to play like this. And all that texture is what really spurred me to like want to play drums again. I mean, that launched a serious you know, educational career, if nothing else. Um, from there, I started taking drum lessons again. From there, I went on to go to the Atlanta Institute of Music and graduated from there. And then I went to the um, college in the town I grew up in and played in jazz band for a long time there. And so, I mean, I, I definitely owe that experience of hearing him play on that record to, like, reinstilling the need to play drums in my life, for sure. Yeah. So interesting, different kind of a story, not just that he's a fan of this particular drummer, Billy Martin of Modesky, Martin and Wood, but that listening to him seems to have changed his life as a musical uh, as a musical student and and pursuing uh, a musical career bitten by the bug it happens you know you hear somebody like when he said ghost notes and says well you know all that you know bernard purdy of course and the very famous bernard purdy shuffle which is full of ghost notes and when you when you hear that you go how does he do that wait a minute and of course, Bernard will tell you how he does it in, uh, in a video. But I, I, I have a lot of friends and experiences, I think myself, that kind of relate to Buddy. You know, you hear somebody or someone doing something that's absolutely uncanny, and you got to know how, it, how it's working. How in the world are you doing that? Um, it can be as, as, as certainly not simple, but it, as kind of contemporary or sitting out there in the top 40 is Roger Williams going down the keyboard on autumn leaves, sort of mm. simulating leaves to how is that working? It isn't just duty duty. It isn't just, 
It isn't just something like that. It's something else. How does that work? Yeah. And, and the drummers are there. There's so many. Vinny Caliuta, you know, I mean, he sounds like three drummers or more. Yeah. And people go, you know, Vinny. And uh, it's like, how in the world are you doing that? Yeah, well, and, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a drummer. And when I was learning, when I was learning to play drums as a teenager, uh, my sister-in-law introduced me to Dave Brubeck. The first album of which she laid on me was Time Out. So there I am learning to play drums and listening to Joe Morello, who's, a, who's if nothing else, a melodic drummer, a, a motivic melodic drummer. And I learned a great deal from that. And, and I think, you know, that that encouraged me and spurred me to look more seriously at how the drums can be played in the hands of a, of a great musician like that. I love Joe. I, I yeah. thought he would. I, you explained uh, his style perfectly. That's what he was, that melodic thing. The, the one, one of the guys who played with uh, Kenny um, when I, while I was there, the guy, Len Hammond, same thing, Dan. He was a melodic drummer. He heard arrangements in his head, and you could hear those arrangements even if nothing else was playing but Len, but himself. I could hear where he was. It was fascinating. One of my first times that I really felt that was Paul Motion with uh, – you know, mm-hmm. Scott LaFaro and Bill Evans. It he was Scott was playing, I mean uh, uh Paul was playing horn parts, brass parts yeah, on, yeah. on the drums, yeah. but there weren't any. It was just you you was, could hear yeah, he was in those places. Sun, Sunday at the Village Vanguard, uh, by Bill Evans and that trio that you just I mean, it's just I mean, that's to die for. It's one of the one of the, there's a reason why some albums become classic and it's for things like that. I so I I I would I'm curious to know and uh, uh what just how many musicians be the professionals or amateurs how many musicians have a similar story because i i think that probably there is something sonic that just grabs hold and doesn't let go and and you know and so uh buddy described it you described it a couple of times in your life how it's played out in your life and i i just i suspect that there's a lot of musicians that have that that origin story, you know, the, uh, the uh, yeah. you know, the, where, where there's a sound that just, you, we, we got to figure it out. What is this? And that gets us experimenting and, you know, and we, and we go beyond that. And, um, I don't, did, did you have a lot of experiences on the bandstand with people, you know, music geeking out, like, like the three of us are doing here, uh, but kind of geeking out about music that wanting to know, more about the musical side of it or or uh, was that a part of the fanship um for for kenny rogers or anybody else that you've worked with you mean sort of where you are you saying where you get together with players or other people and sort of shoot the i just yeah i like so i i i think that if i were to um you know if i were to rush up to the music director at a Kenny Rogers show, I would be curious about, you know, like, uh, like the arrangements or something like, I I would kind of be very, very hyper-focused on some detail that it's a very, it's different than saying I loved the song, the gambler, or I, you know, or I'm a big fan of this, you know, I've always got to see this artist. It's a, it's like, you know, I, my, you know, my, so let me put it in a different, different, very specific example. Uh, 
I, cause I've gotten to speak to a handful of people that have played in the James Brown band in the nineties, uh, it just randomly. And I think if I saw the James Brown show in the nineties, which I didn't, uh, I, I never got to see, I would have been more excited to talk to the musicians than James Brown, you know, like J James Brown's, you know, it was a force of nature, but fine. It'd be fascinating to have a conversation with him, but it, it was the music and I know that the music was being made. Like I would rather talk to his music director than to talk to him because yeah, I was he so was impressed by the sound. Yeah. Mazio, remember? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mazio Parker. And he would talk to him all the time. But the fact, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And yes, there, every musician you run into has got to have an origin story, as you put it, where there's some little illuminating moment where they went, what on earth is that? What's going on there? And it, it compelled them to get into different fields, of course. But James, they would start a groove. It, he would he would write songs on the spot. Yeah, you can kind of feel that he did that. Uh -huh. They start with yeah. a drama funk thing, and then they just add some stuff and kind of get it going on. And he'd eventually come in with something, popcorn or hot tub or something. You know what I mean? And, and they would build some things. I'm not sure that that applied to every tune but i'm not sure it isn't a curious way of composing you know james had a curious way of composing did you know he was an organ player yeah yeah i i'd heard a little like a hammond organ uh and drums yeah he also played drums too i didn't know that i didn't know that how cool but you you i mean you can tell in his uh in his arrangement some of the ones that he sort of sang out arrangements it's sort of like every instrument is a drum you know it's like everybody's a rhythm section kind of a little bit some of those riffs well that's this is all great conversation and it's been a really wonderful time uh having you with us brian and i thank you so much warren hartman of franklin franklin tennessee and longtime musical accompanist to uh, Kenny Rogers. Thanks so much for being with us on this episode of Lifetimes of Listening. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. can you get involved in our project? You could visit our website, musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. There you could submit a musical memory of your own and a sound file or an essay or poem or even an illustration. You could suggest somebody that you'd like to share their musical memory with us. Um, I am Brian Moon. And I'm Dan Cruz. And that's it for this installment of Lifetimes of Listening the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast. Thanks for being here. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. 
Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast.